We're going to begin this afternoon in Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Let's notice verses 6 through 11. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. Paul writes, saying, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. The passage before us, I believe, joins other great passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 23, Hebrews 11, Philippians 4, and John chapter 3 as being some of the greatest among God's Word. Because all of those chapters, as well as many others, have long brought comfort to the hearts of people. They're full of words of encouragement in times of discouragement. They point the Christian to a time when the trials of this life will be no more when the sadness of the world will be nothing but a forgotten memory, and the glory of heaven will abound in the hearts of those who gather round the throne of the King for all eternity. In this passage, Paul rehearses for us the benefits belonging to the children of God. Those verses make plain the provisions that have come our way by the death of Jesus and through the obedience of those who have dedicated themselves to His doctrine and His system of faith. Now these very verses tell us what we are without Him, what He did for us, and what we have because of Him. I want us to draw our attention to begin with to verse 8 to the very last phrase of that verse, and I want us to focus on the last two words, for us. Those two words sum up the context and the content of Paul's message. As we consider Paul's words, I want us to do it with the thought, He did it all for us. That's the title of the sermon this afternoon. He did it all for us. And I want us to start with the sinner's pitiable condition. Paul brings that out. He begins with the idea that being without strength means when one is without Christ. Being without strength is you're without Christ, meaning we are weak. The person without Christ simply is the one who is weak. And it carries with it this idea of being powerless, meaning utterly helpless with no means of escape. What that tells us is the lost, they stand before God with absolutely no ability to change what He is without Christ. 
Not that he doesn't have the ability within him to do it, or that he is born in such a position to where he can't do it. Not like the denominational teaching is that we're born sinful from birth and that we have to have some kind of a miraculous effect upon us with the Holy Spirit to be able to come out of the sinfulness of darkness. That's not at all what he intends. We are weak outside of Christ to be able to get out of the situation in which we find ourselves. Notice what Ezekiel wrote, Ezekiel 18 verse 20. He said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. This idea of being born with sin already uh, upon us that we have to answer for is absolutely foreign to the Word of God. Now notice what Paul warned the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Not that he will receive the things done he's born with, the things that he does. And so, that's what he is talking about. But the, the individual who gets to the age of accountability is weak outside of Christ in being able to take care of the sins in his life. That's what sin does to a person. It makes him weakened. It makes him without strength. It took the sacrifice of Christ to give people the ability to remove the sins of this life. In other words, Christ offered the strength and the means by which to take away that sin. It took away the sins of the wayward. That's the pitiable condition in which people have found themselves in throughout history. The wayward are the ungodly. Paul talks about the ungodly. That refers to those who are without reverence or fear of God. And that literally literally means to live as if God does not exist. Look around the world today. People live as if God does not exist. That's what those who are weak and wayward do. They live as if God does not exist. They're living outside the bounds of Christ. They act like He's not even alive in this world. They act like God is a myth. And when we look at this idea of sin, the whole idea of sin, and the the meaning of that literally means to miss the mark, and it it has within it the meaning of, of of the idea of an archer aiming at a bullseye and missing the whole target. He's missing the whole target. Outside of Christ, no matter how good he aims, no matter how much effort he puts into it, outside of Christ, he cannot reach the target. He can never be good enough to please God. You can't do enough good works to please God. Now, here's what we need to understand. It is important to always remember that the works of God are works of obedience, not works of people. We're not working our way to heaven because we obey the works of God. Faith is a work of God. Jesus was asked on one occasion, how do I work the works of God? And He said, believe on Him who sent Him. And so we have to, have to believe on Him. Faith is a work. Repentance is a work. Those are works of God and we have to understand that. And so when we look at the plan of salvation, 
No one in the denominational world would argue about the necessity of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, Hebrews 11, 6. I don't believe anyone in the denominational world would argue with the necessity of repentance. Acts 2.38, they might argue with the last part of that verse, but not with, with the first part of it, right? I don't think anyone would argue with the necessity of confessing that Jesus is who He said He was. But they want to argue with the necessity of baptism. Baptism, they say, you're trying to work your way into heaven. It's a, it's a, a work of obedience. It's a work of God because it originated in heaven. And so we have to understand that that's a part of who Jesus was. If we go back to Acts chapter 8 and we begin to look at the interaction of Philip and Ethiopian eunuch, and he goes up and he joins himself to that chariot, I believe somewhere around Acts 8, 26 or 27, and he asks the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless some man help me? And he takes that same Scripture he was reading in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, and he says he begins at that same Scripture and he taught him Jesus. And then we get down to verse 37. And whatever He taught Him, we do not have everything recorded for us, but part of that was confession and baptism. And so that's not a work of people. That's a work of God, a work of, of obedience. So Paul said before reconciliation, the person or the wayward was an enemy of God. To be an enemy of God means that person was in the devil's camp, whether he realized it or not. And so, we know that because Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. A person may not fully realize that he's against God, and he may be. And so, being, being apart from Jesus is a pitiable condition where the weak and the wayward find themselves. But there is hope. There's hope because of the Savior's priceless compassion. That's our second point. Paul speaks of the superiority of Christ's compassion. Notice what he says. He says there are a few people in life for who a person might die. A few people are out there that would consider giving themselves for another person. Who would that be in our own lives? Well, there are people in our own lives that we would give ourselves for. A mother, a father, a husband, a wife, children, even maybe a very, very close friend. But look, if we really want to sit down and begin to think about it, there are few people in our lives that we would, without hesitation, immediately give ourselves, give our lives for without thinking. There are not that many. Now, there are some. But there are a whole lot of people that would have to say, well, I don't know, let me think about that for a moment. Let me think about that, right? I read a true story, or it's supposed to have been a true story. There were two miners who were trapped in a cave, and they had two oxygen masks, and, and one was damaged, and only one of those men were going to get out alive. And one of the miners was a single man, and he handed the good masks over to the other man. He said, here you take it. You've got a wife and you've got children. He said, I don't have anyone. I can go, but you've got to stay. Now that's a, 
that's an admirable thing to do, but that's not just out of the ordinary for someone to do that. Those things happen in life, right? We've read about things like that. Haven't we all heard about military hero, heroes who have given their lives for their fellow comrades to save their fellow soldier in, in different scenarios that have happened? Well, sure we have. That happens on occasion. Those are rare examples of sacrifice, but they all have one common theme. They demonstrate the human capacity to give oneself for the sake of those who they love. Family, friends, fellow soldiers. Those are, that's one thing. But what about this? Can you imagine giving yourself for an enemy? You see, human love has its limits, doesn't it? But God does not. Verse 6 tells us of our passage that Jesus did just that. Jesus did not die for the good. He died for the ungodly. Now notice the statement of of Christ's compassion. We need to understand exactly how God's love transcends anything humanity was able then or ever has been able to produce. The Father put His great love on display when Jesus died for those, Paul says, who were yet sinners. You see, while they were still weak and wayward, Jesus died for them and He died for us. Notice this. Didn't die for His friends. They benefited. But they were just a handful, right? He died for His enemies. He didn't die really for people who loved Him. They benefited, but they were just a few. He died for those who hated Him. For those who crucified Him. For those who wanted Him to die. He died for the ungodly, right? Think about this. On December the 4th, 2006, in a Baghdad, Iraq neighborhood, a grenade was thrown into a gunner's hatch of a Humvee. There were five soldiers riding in this Humvee. And in the vehicle, there was a 19-year-old private first class. His name was Ross A. McGinnis. He was uh, an army private first class. Now he had time to jump out of that Humvee and, and to save himself, but that's not what he did. What he did was he jumped into that hatch and he covered that grenade with his own body, absorbing the fragments of that grenade and saving the lives of his four fellow soldiers. He was killed instantly. Later on, President George W. Bush posthumously awarded Private McGinnis the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now we look at that and we say, that was something. That man was a hero. That 19-year-old kid really was a hero. He deserved that Congressional Medal of Honor. He was riding in that Humvee and those four men no doubt were friends of his. Now suppose this had happened. Suppose that American soldier had been captured by, oh I don't know, ISIS or the Taliban 
or some other hateful group that we would just as soon be eradicated from the earth. And imagine that they had beaten and mutilated that young man to the point that he was unrecognizable. And suppose they were carrying him off to the cruelest death imaginable, and then a grenade was thrown into the middle of that group, and that young man had thrown himself down on that grenade to save the lives of his enemies. Everyone would say, people don't do that. Well, that's right, people don't do that. Human nature recoils at the thought of doing good to one's enemies. But God does do that. And He did that for us. He did that for all of us. And He did that a long time ago. It was far worse than that, what He did. How can anyone ever look at this world and ask this question? And it is asked and it happens all the time. If God is a God of love, then why do bad things happen? That is one of the most foolish statements, I think, that has ever been uttered in the history of humanity. If there is any doubt in anyone's mind as to the love of God, they need to stop for a moment. They need to look back to Calvary. And there they will see a holy, sinless God, the Creator, dying for the creature who hated Him. They will see a person and they need to watch as the life leaves His body They need to watch as the blood streams and runs down the cross. Listen as the blood drips into large pools upon the ground. Hear as He gasps for His last breath and gives His life as a sacrifice for sin. It's all recorded for us. They need to look at that bleeding form hanging there lifeless on a cross and then tell someone, God doesn't love me. And He sure doesn't love you. There never has been, nor will there ever be, a greater display of God's love than a beaten, dead Savior hanging on a bloody cross. He did it for all of us because of our pitiable condition. He demonstrated a Savior's priceless compassion and that resulted in a saint's precious conversion. That's our third and our last point. What that did was it brought the Christian to a position in which he needed to be. Christians can be justified or not guilty in the sight of God. And that's where we want to be. Paul said, save from wrath. Because we are in Jesus, we are protected from the wrath of God. Hebrews 10.31, the writer said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The unprepared, it would be a fearful thing. It doesn't have to be a fearful thing. Jesus talked about the exact opposite found in John 14 verses 1-3 through 3, as He encouraged the disciples prior to His leaving this world. But Paul warned those in Ephesus, Ephesians 5 verse 6, he said, Let no man deceive you with vain words, 
For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. He told those in Thessalonica, many of those who would be punished at the second coming with a flaming fire, with the sword of Jesus, they would be so punished because they obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. See, that's because disobedience brings about the wrath of God. Jesus took that away. He allowed those who are obedient to stand in a position of justification. To be justified is to be reconciled, Paul says in our passage, meaning no longer in opposition to God. We are reconciled, brought back to Him, on the same page as it were, to come and be in a position where we ought to be. Having been brought together through the blood of Jesus and at peace with God. That position brings about preservation. Paul said, saved by His life. Now that tells us something, doesn't it? He's not talking about the life He walked upon this earth. He's talking about the life He lives right now. As He reigns from heaven. We're we're talking about Him as our advocate, 1 John 2.1. We're talking about Him as our intercessor, Hebrews 7.25. As our high priest, Hebrews 3.1. As our advocate, or rather our mediator, Hebrews 12.24. So we're talking about life giving as an everlasting treasure to the faithful. That was promised. Titus 1, verse 2, because of the atonement given by Jesus. The atonement. He did it all for us. What a privilege to have that offered and to have received that atonement for sin. All through history, humanity has desired to get closer and to get closer and to get closer to God. That's why Israel offered all those millions of Sheep sacrifices and bull sacrifices and goat sacrifices and bird sacrifices all down through the years. Not just Israel. What about all the patriarchs? All down through the the millennia. They offered and they offered and they offered and all those animals, what it could not do for them, Jesus' blood did do for us. Hebrews 10, 11-14. When we read these verses, we ought to be amazed that God would do all of that for us. It's really unbelievable, but He did it. Knowing that, we need to ask ourselves, where do we stand? Are we close to God as we ought to be? Because all of those folks tried to get closer and closer and closer. That's what they wanted. It's what they desired. If we're not, we don't have to stay that way. We have the opportunity through that atonement, even today, because that's the whole idea of of obeying the gospel. We talked about how to do that. Coming back through repentance and confession if we've become unfaithful and continuing to walk in the light to remain in contact with that blood. Continually being cleansed, 1 John 1 verse 7. If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation, if you need to come back to Him and you want to get into contact with that blood, 
Let that be known as we stand and as we sing.